0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for June 24th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal. And I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, this week, I'd like to talk about a couple of things that we've just learned. The first really continues last week's discussion about transmission. This week, we published a piece that presents a framework for thinking about how to reopen with an emphasis on low-tech prevention measures. What should governments and businesses be thinking about as we reopen?
1: This piece was interesting, and it started out with an interesting parallel. In hospitals, we've been taking measures that initially were perhaps not adequate, and there were a lot of healthcare workers exposed to disease, and many became ill. And certainly in China and Italy, we had a lot of deaths of healthcare workers. But that has improved considerably, and it's improve despite the fact that we don't have a vaccine and we don't have a preventive therapy for disease. Really, a lot of what's been done is taking much more low-tech interventions. And I think one way of thinking about the piece that we published, which was about the practicalities of translating what we know into a business setting, uh, really we can look at through the lens of what has worked already. They divided the interventions into some categories. Again, these are going to be pretty familiar to physicians who've spent time practicing during the epidemic. So I'll call those categories environmental, segmentation, testing, and contact tracing. By environmental, they mean physical barriers like plexiglass shields that you see in grocery stores to separate patrons from cashiers, and administrative actions such as creating work opportunities for those at very high risk. And the other thing that I'd add to that is masks, which do seem to make a difference in the workplace. Segmentation means controlling work hours and staggering schedules, telecommuting, limiting professional travel. And the authors argue that testing may have limited applicability because at least testing for virus is only transiently positive. And so unless we have the capacity and the funding to do repeated testing very frequently, it may not have a big impact on transmission, which makes sense. And they don't really discuss serology, but I think the same would apply to serology until we understand it. We don't really know what to do with the results of that. And contact tracing remains a work in progress. Who's going to do it? Is it going to be up to the employer? Is it going to be up to local public health authorities? In Hospitals, we have an entire unit, an infection control unit, that does contact tracing, although even that would be very overwhelmed by the number of potential exposures during the epidemic. But businesses don't have this, and so it's not clear how this will be used or when it can be used, and that may require some technological interventions.
2: Eric, I think that you frame it very nicely, how we think about diminishing the risk of transmission, But I do think we have to think carefully about what's pragmatic versus what's ideal and which of these elements we're making choices on because of the resources that are available and also determining the authority for which of these elements. And testing is particularly vexing, given the knock-on implications with who can go to work at home, state reporting, so different challenges. But I think as we watch the expansion of this virus over the last week or two across the country and in several states, I do think we have to think very carefully about pragmatic versus ideal. And I think reopening business is critically important. Um, Schools and other environments and working through these different maneuvers, particularly those which are lower cost and more easily implemented, absolutely, but we also do need to think carefully about the potential benefit of additional elements. And one of the challenges, I think, with determining the impact of these different interventions is the timing. What I do today does not impact the number of new cases today. It won't be seen for two to six weeks, depending on the cycle time of transmission and getting into more vulnerable communities that are more easily seen. So I think it's a as we all know, a complicated arena. The idea of strategically standing up key preventive measures, particularly ones that are lower cost and easily implementable, should absolutely be done. And then we have to carefully look at those which are a little more complicated as to what strategies would make sense.
0: So, if I own a small business in downtown Boston, what should I be looking at in terms of reopening? What are the obstacles to implementing good procedures? What should I do?
1: I think, Steve, one of the biggest issues is the expertise, is that most businesses don't have medical expertise or public health expertise built into their businesses right now, and they can't. It's not reasonable. So instead, they have to turn to public health authorities and say, what are the guidelines? And then how can I implement them in my setting?" that's not always very easy and i've certainly gotten questions from friends about what should we be doing in our workplace and it's hard to translate a general recommendation into the very specifics of how you do it but the other factor of course is that everything we're talking about costs money changing work hours costs money allowing people to work from home can have opportunity costs and so someone in business of course has to weigh all of those considerations when they're thinking about how they can implement some of these things. I would add the one other factor, of course, is that not everything is widely available. Testing, as I mentioned before, remains relatively expensive, and it's not practical for most people to be doing it repeatedly. And so that's probably out. But high filtration masks, like N95 masks, they also continue to be in fairly short supply. And so other logistical considerations come into play.
2: I think that Part of the issue here, Steve, is this is a dynamic process. So what was going on, and we saw this two to four weeks ago in certain regions of the country where there was little transmission and much more social liberalization, so to speak, and now it's changed. So I think we have to realize that two to six weeks from now, there may be different transmission dynamics in our local community that has to be factored in. I think there are principles of transmission that I think are straightforward, and then how to operationalize them to protect the employees, the business, the customers. You know, And that, as Eric already alluded to, is using technology to increase spacing, just the physical distancing of individuals so they're less likely to transmit to each other. And that is going to be different for different businesses because a business that is more electronic can more easily spread people out, while a business that is in customer service may require more direct interaction. And one needs to be aware of the transmission dynamics of this virus. This is a virus that obeys infectious disease principles and to understand those to diminish transmission. I differ a little bit with Eric on the issue of testing. There is not capacity for testing. For me, that doesn't mean that it isn't critical because I think that the silent transmission of this bug in so many leads to a very challenging control environment. There is a problem because testing is not easily available. It is expensive. And so those are very important parameters that have to be carefully weighed. On the other hand, we do have to have I think of it as radar. We have to have radar to know where this bug is transmitting before it's explosive, and then to be able to put in appropriate control measures. Now, whether that testing is at the individual business level or that testing is at the larger community level, I think a proper thought has to go into that. But we need to know where transmission is going on to properly direct resources to decrease transmission. And the silent behavior of this organism in too many of us is what's, I think, so vexing for all.
1: I think you hit on the important consideration with testing there, Lindsay, which is that an individual business, particularly a small business, is not A, going to be able to implement it right now, and B, the effectiveness of testing within their setting for their employees is going to be very low. Where it makes much more sense is in large congregate settings accompanied by contact tracing. And in most cases, that's going to have to be done by public health authorities to have any real broad impact or impact even in individual workplaces. Now, there are some large employers who are doing repeated testing and they have found the capacity to do that and the money to do that. And that's great if they have it. But I don't think that right now it's going to be something that most employers are going to be able to consider.
2: I think you're absolutely correct, Eric. I think that the ability for a coffee shop or you know, my daughter does dance, for the dance studio to do testing in a way that makes business sense or even public health sense is quite limited. However, one could imagine larger settings like large nursing homes or other senior centers where there's a large enough density of individuals and traffic of individuals who may bring in the virus. One needs to think about infection control strategies, as you alluded to, that the hospitals have. But ultimately, we have to have, as I say, radar. We have to have the radar up in the larger community that we are part of, wherever we are in the country or the world, to be able to identify where transmission is in the community sense, and then bring in the proper resources to curtail that. And it's dynamic. So what we may think is appropriate in New York City two months ago may be different than New York City today, which may be different two months from now if transmission dynamics change. And when we see upticks in cases, it's not what I'm doing today. It's what I did a month ago that needs to be looked at carefully given the doubling time of this organism from congregate events. So we have to use scientific principles to draw the correct conclusions of where and when transmissions occurring so we intervene thoughtfully.
0: I'd like to move on to a very different topic. We've known for some time that there's tremendous variability in the outcome of infection with SARS-CoV-2. We've known about some of the risk factors for severe disease from very early on, advanced age, a set of comorbid illnesses, but these only account for a limited amount of the total risk. This week, we learned about another potential factor that could play a part in susceptibility to severe disease. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, there was an interesting genetic study this week that we published. This came from a large European group, which performed a classic genome-wide association study, a GWAS, to look for loci associated with severe infection. They took two groups of patients, each about 800 patients from Spain and another 800 from Italy, and a large number of control participants from both countries, and compared those patients who had severe disease with these control patients to see if there were loci that differed. Um, They used a DNA microarray. They did a sort of classical analysis for their genotyping. And then they did an association study looking for loci that were significantly associated with disease. They found two loci that met their threshold for significance. One of them is on chromosome three, and it mapped to a locus with six genes in it. And we really aren't sure which of these genes, maybe multiple genes in that locus, are associated with increased risk. But they also found a second locus. That one's on chromosome nine, and this one had a very clear association because the causative SNP is associated with the phenotype we know well, which is blood group A. And so it looks like in both of these populations that people with blood group A are at increased risk of serious infection. This was true in both the Spanish and the Italian populations, and there have been preprints, not yet published, uh, using other methods that also suggest that blood group A is a risk factor. So, what does this mean? A couple of things. First off, it is yet another way of identifying people who might be at increased risk. And if we had therapies that we could calibrate, we might change our therapeutic algorithm based on risk. And we don't know how much increased risk this represents right now and how much of a contributing factor it is. But it also means something from the basic science side. We really don't know why blood group A is associated with increased risk in these patients. However, blood groups are associated with differing outcomes in many infectious diseases. Some of these are simple because we know that the receptor for the pathogen is made up of a blood group antigen. But remember, blood groups are oligosaccharides that are synthesized by a variety of transglycosylase enzymes. And these enzymes are present in lots of cells. So the oligosaccharides can be found in a lot of different tissues. So I think we have a lot more to learn. It's possible that the presence of an oligosaccharide influences the course of illness, either by serving as a receptor or a co-receptor, or in some other way, modifying how our immune system responds.
2: I think it is fascinating teleologically in that we know that, Eric, as you said, that blood group has been associated with amelioration or severity of infection with cholera, with a variety of pathogens, and also alterations in hemoglobin with malaria, so that There is an evolutionary development that we don't understand scientifically yet, but that is, I don't think, by chance. And the investigations that will help us understand the biology of what's going on, I bet you are going to fit into themes of how we interact with pathogens in the environment and have innate properties that protect some of us against different types of unanticipated pathogens. So I find these data incredibly exciting, incredibly interesting. I don't think they're directly applicable to care today, where we would change how we transfuse blood or do something else with a patient. I don't think they are applicable in any such way. On the other hand, they do speak to biology and to how we co-evolve with pathogens with different adaptive immune and intrinsic biologic properties that may resist certain types of infection. And that's fascinating, and it's fascinating to be able to make these discoveries in a short period of
1: time. Well, I could change practice. I mean, I'm blood group A and I'm going to be hiding in a bunker for the next several months. Um, No, I'm actually not. While we know that there's an increased risk, we don't yet know what the magnitude of risk is, and that would be very important to decide what we do with this information.
2: But it's the same thing associated with other pathogens. If it was truly a dominant risk factor, then it would be extremely clear and there would be more deleterious consequences. So it's a nuance, but I think a lot of our evolutionary advantages are nuanced that provide a slight selective advantage or protection that plays out over time, since our generation time is a bit slower than bacteria or viruses. But it does speak to how we are designed, so to speak, in that we are meant to be able to adapt to different threats, including the microbes.
1: I guess the other thing is that it plays into the whole question of how much we individualize therapy right now. We know that people come into the hospital with easily identifiable risk factors. obese, they have diabetes, they have cardiovascular disease, and right now we look at those people and largely worry, but we don't really have any way of individualizing therapy really because the number of therapies available to us is very limited. But as time goes on, as we learn more about the therapies we have and where they can be applied, I think that it's entirely possible that risk factors we identify will modify our approaches to patients.
2: That's the exciting part of investigation, is figuring out those things that we can have a positive impact on.
0: Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.